0: welcome to the jay martin show if you're new to the show my name is jay i'm an investor looking for the smartest home for my cash if that sounds like you i think you're going to like what we do here now my guest today is danielle park she's a portfolio manager and president at venable park investment council we spent the majority of this conversation talking about the Pent up crisis that is building in the housing market, both in Canada and the United States, where the big vulnerable points are and what might occur and when as rates begin to catch up with those paying mortgages they can no longer afford. So, lots of good stuff in here. It's kind of a dire outlook, but as we express a little bit, you know, the most dire situations do lead to the biggest opportunities, and this could be a setup for one of those. So, Hope you enjoy this. As always, if you like my work, I publish a weekly newsletter. It comes out every Sunday. Rides dive into the psychology of decision-making for investors. Readers tell me they love the focus on biases, heuristics, and blind spots that lead to our best and worst decision-making as investors. Managing the mind is without question the most important tool belt, tool in every investor's tool belt. So check that out. Hit the link below if you want to hear from me every Sunday. But first, here is Danielle Park. Enjoy. here I am joined by Danielle Park. Danielle, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Hey, thank you.
0: So here's where I want to start. We've been watching rates increase rapidly, waiting for something to break, um, waiting for the economy to respond in a certain way. And it seems like maybe certain lagging indicators are starting to catch up. In your most recent uh, monthly newsletter, you touched on the employment numbers looking like they're maybe beginning to roll over a little bit. And so are they? And uh, do you think that's a trend that we're going to now see materialize over the next few months, rising unemployment?
1: Yeah. So my point was, of course, that unemployment is the most lagging of the indicators. And it's always the case that it looks strong heading into downturn. So it's very misleading if you put a lot of weight on that. And many of the talking heads that you'll hear on financial media will say, oh, you know, well, things are pretty good because the unemployment rate is still really low. And so we're not very pessimistic. Well, you might as well just throw that comment completely out because it's absolutely worthless. Because the reality is that we're normally a year into a recession before the unemployment rate will rise like 1.1%. And we've never had a recession where the unemployment rate only rises a half point or a percent. It's always like a couple. It's always at the margin, right? Uh, During the great uh, financial crisis, of course, it went up several percentage points but that was sort of a very extreme example, but just to even have a point or 2% rise is very typical. And as I say, it happens during the recessions, not beforehand. And so you can't take any solace from that. So in Canada, for example, the unemployment rate um, bottomed in last June, a a year ago, June, about 4.9%, extremely low historically. And it's now, you know, 5.6%. And we're seeing a similar tick up just recently in the US unemployment rate. So I think it's most likely we're going to see that continue to rise. And the reason I say that is, we follow a lot of the leading economic indicators of employment uh, of the jobs market, you know, part time, uh, people willing to quit and change jobs, uh, the temporary health workers, the weekly hourly, sort of the average work week, all these things have been uh, declining or deteriorating in the past several months. And they are indeed precursors typically to rising unemployment. So I think that that is the Bogey, so to speak, that we're watching here um, as we move into 2024. And I think it's going to be something that's not just in North America, but in fact, we're starting to see deterioration globally.
0: So, yeah, and you have referenced some other indicators that occur before unemployment numbers go up. One being the decreased work week, which is correct, it's the number of hours worked per week by the average citizen. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so it makes sense because I'm going to cut employees back before I let them go, right? Um,
1: Sure, sure. And you're seeing a lot of um, the large companies. Of course, the tech companies were leading this cycle coming in. You know, we had that really euphoric time in tech stock and financing was really cheap for tech companies during the pandemic and we had a big surge in their employment uh, because again they were able to have employees work from home and they were able to they were in the space where everyone was wanting the technology right to do uh, virtual meetings and to function uh, off-premise and so the tech was really in the 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 hot spot, so to speak, in terms of demand in the in the world economy. And they did add a lot of payroll during that time. But in the last year, you've seen that reversing. And they were letting go, you know, thousands of people over the last year. And it's now spreading indeed to the smaller companies that are not so uh, fortunate in terms of their, you know, the, the mania that was making financing costs so cheap for the big tech names um, was not available to the smaller. And we're starting to see the rising bankruptcy trend, of course, in small and medium-sized companies, where you've got something like 33% higher bankruptcies in Canada uh, in the last year and 25% higher in in America. And that's the small and medium-sized companies. And those tend to be the bulk of the job growers, the job creators in the economy. So when you see them, you know, laying off people and going bankrupt, you know that you're in the sort of next phase of the uh, unemployment cycle.
0: Yeah, I wish I had this stat in front of me that I pulled from a podcast earlier earlier this week referencing the top 10 bankruptcies in the United States collectively uh, would be accountable for over 200,000 layoffs. And that's just the top 10. So we're talking about you know big firms like Bed Bath and Beyond, of course. Um, so when you say uh, bankruptcies are up 33% in Canada and 25% in the United States, is that year over year or what's the reference point there?
1: Uh, I believe that's year over year. It could be year to date. Um, I'm, I'm I'm escaping that exact detail, but I think it's year over year that I pulled that number just recently.
0: Okay, and I and I saw a handful of times referenced on Twitter this week. Once at least once from Steph Pomboy, that August set a record in the United States for bankruptcy filings. And
1: sure. And it makes sense, you know, Jay, because the credit cycle leads the employment cycle, right? It's not the other way around. The credit cycle leads the employment cycle, and uh, it impacts the economic cycle. There's this self-feeding frenzy that happens when people start to lose, you know, pay, whether they start to lose uh, earning uh, power, whether they start to learn, lose um hours worked in a week, um, that comes as a function just as the cost of living is high and credit costs have gone up so significantly. And this is the major factor. So this is not something that's just hitting households, of course, it's hitting corporations too. Because just like households, corporations extended their debt significantly during the very low rate era that we saw during the pandemic in particular. A lot of um, debt was issued at that point to increase cash reserves. Uh, which was fine so long as the cash reserves lasted, but they've been largely used um, to a a grand extent for households almost completely used up. Um, And now they've just got the debt and the higher servicing costs. Of course, the 22-fold increase in the base rate in the banking system since um, early 2022 is really something that is a phenomenal rate shock. And we've only seen any kind of, You know, something of that magnitude, maybe three other times in history. And every one of those preceded a major downturn in real estate and the overall economy. So I think that that's really the the number one theme here is that big hit. And coming as I've mentioned, you know, I've I've written about this a bit, but the the whole point being that we did have other episodes where the rate hike was uh, about as abrupt but we've never had one coming at the end of 13 years of nearly zero interest rates, Jay. And I think that is a fundamentally different factor this time because we had that period, which was so long of extend and pretend, and it really lulled people into an unprecedented level of complacency with respect to debt. And I mean, at every level of the economy, right? So to have this abrupt 22 fold increase in the base rate and, you know, a tripling in mortgage costs and the highest interest rates we've seen in consumer debt, the Average uh, consumer debt loan, and I think, is around thirteen percent now in terms of a rate. Credit card debt is well above twenty two percent interest rates. You know, as you know, the mortgage market in Canada. The rates are above six. People are having to qualify at eight if they're doing stress tests. And in the US, it's well above seven. So these are like 23 year highs in interest rates at a time, as I say, when people come into it with more debt than they've ever had at the peak of any other cycle. So that makes this one that much more onerous, I think.
0: Yeah. Oh, man, there's so much in there I want to pull on. I want to start with some of your commentary about real estate. And I'm going to quote your newsletter, if I may. From your August edition because these numbers just blew me away. Uh, we're, we're talking about Canadian real estate right now. Um, some variable rate borrowers have continued making uh, the same fixed payment as when their interest rate was sub 2%, meaning they haven't been paying more as rates have gone up. Interest costs have not been paid. Um, adding um, interest, interest costs not paid have been added to the principal outstanding, extending amortization periods to 60, 70, and even 90 years in what are being dubbed forever mortgages. I read that and I couldn't believe it. Could you uh, expand on that statement for me a little bit and explain it a little bit?
1: Sure. So we had this, uh, again, this extended pretend theme from the banks when the rate shock began to happen. Because we had this unprecedented period of low rates, because during the pandemic, floating mortgages got down to 1.5, 1.65, really unprecedented. And people were lulled into a sense of uh, complacency at that level and took on so much more debt. And this was why you know, real estate prices were able to jump as much as they did during that couple of years when everyone was trying to buy anything and everything they could, it was really entirely fueled by these really low rates. So the problem there, of course, is that when they start dramatically hiking rates, people are not prepared. They did. They were already thinly stretched, Jay, because the principal portion was insane. So, you, you know, people were like, oh, well, the rate portion is so low. Yeah, but the principal paid was ridiculously high, 10 times household income, this sort of thing, just off the charts. When a historical norm was like three to four was considered affordable, people were paying eight, 10, 12 times their household income just for shelter. So we always knew this was going to be a bad plan. I was talking about it then. I was saying if you used low rates to get out of debt, that would be one thing. But when you use it to double and triple your debt, that's a bad plan. And that's, in fact, what was done on a systemic level, unfortunately, for the masses. So what you see then is when the rate starts to float up, banks sort of panic and say, oh, boy, people are having a hard time. You know, if we do any kind of conventional debt to uh, income service ratios here, we can't justify these loans like people can't actually carry the amount of principal and interest or just even the interest portion as it goes up so much so they said let's not make people bump their payment up those that are on a fixed payment let's just leave it at that and hope this rate problem goes away again before you know we have to do anything about it well what happened of course is that The Bank of Canada has continued to hold steady on the the high rates. Uh, You know, even if we're done tightening here, they're not likely to be cutting again soon. At least if you take them on their word, they're still wanting to stay tight for some time. And what that means is that the the bank regulators are looking at these, uh, you know, in the latest bank uh, earnings reports, we're seeing the portion of these mortgages outstanding on their balance sheets where customers are not even making the basic interest payments. And that, you know, deficit is adding to the principal. And that of course, adds the that extends the amortization or time it's gonna take you to pay back that loan. And so the bank regulator looks at this and says, gee guys, you're gonna have to start pulling these guys into some kind of a normal 25 year AM. If they're more than 65% loan to value, any kind of refi, you've got to somehow get them to either lump sum or, uh, you know, um, increase their payment, do something to get them into a more conventional mortgage uh, terms and, and duration. And so the bank started sending out letters in the last few months saying, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna work with you, but work with you, you know, it's, it's just not an option for so many people to come up with a big lump sum or to all of a sudden increase their payment so significantly. And so we've got this really big issue and it's compounding, as I say, in a bad way, and also, you know, the banks are setting aside PS each quarter more and more for loan loss provisions, and so that's probably why we've seen like the Canadian financial index is off about eighteen percent from its peak in twenty twenty two. It peaked; the bank shares peaked in line with the housing market prices in Canada, Jay, early twenty twenty two, and everything's really been coming off since with this rate shock.
0: Okay, I want to talk about your perspective on. Any kind of a pivot because I mean, you, you to quote you here, you said the banks are just hoping, or at that point in time, we're just hoping the rate problem would go away. I think a lot of people are just hoping the rate problem is going to go away. I'm not convinced it's going to, and I feel like you might be aligned in that. Prior to what does this tell you, what you just shared about near term, medium term Canadian real estate market, given that, again, I'm going to quote you 77% of Canada's net worth is tied up in home prices. And uh, another data point from your newsletter, what is it? 90% of Canadians have little net worth outside of their home. So in some kind of a housing shock, I mean, what's going to happen here if the banks have to start calling these loans, start squeezing people out of their 90 year amortization rates, which is just crazy into some kind of a reasonable 25 year uh, period, You know, what's that going to do in terms of inventory that's going to be forced onto the market, people are going to be handing over the keys, maybe, or am I being too dramatic? Like, What do you think about this?
1: No, I mean, I think this is another classic example of a lagging economic indicator. So this is another reason why people will say, you know, well... We've had the big heightening, tightening shock, and we've seen rates jump so much And the Canadian mortgage market, uh, sorry, the Canadian property market is only off about 11% uh, from the peak. So look, we've withstood the shock and things are fine. And uh, that's all very wishful thinking, because we know that real estate cycles tend to take a matter of years after a peak for the prices to finally bottom. And you can understand why because no one wants to fall behind on their mortgage. Everybody wants to try and keep in their home. I take no pleasure in saying this. I think it's a sad development, of course, when families are are finding a a difficult time holding on to their shelter. But the mistakes were really made in the low rate environment. The precursors to all that have really been set in motion for some time and the extending beyond the reasonable levels of amount you pay you know, that was all the the sort of the, the die cast for what's happening now. But I do think that the volume of properties that are going to be coming on the market for listing, I'm seeing it anecdotally in my area just north of Toronto. As I go on my, you know, my walkabouts, I'm noticing more and more pri- properties saying coming soon, you know, new listing and then new price, already seeing new price. And it makes no surprise because if you do the math, Like like I was talking about in the in my month end letter, you know Uh, Most people can't qualify today to buy the house they're currently living in. If they had to borrow money to buy in a conventional mortgage, they would not be able to pay for it based on their income. Because even if you have a couple of hundred thousand dollars of household income at current rates with a 20% down, the average house price in Canada, 750 off from eight and change at the peak of the market, you basically can't qualify to borrow more than about $650,000 today. And that's if you have zero other debt, Jay, no car payments, no loans, no student debt, none of that. So we just know that on the math, you know, that's called the discount rate. The discount rate is much higher today for and when you use that in any kind of present value calculation for assets, you find that they're worth a lot less at a high discount rate than they are when interest rates are much lower and just in terms of, of the basic math of it. So that's why I think we're gonna to continue to see, and it typically should take another year or two before, you know, again, a, we know a third of a trillion mortgages uh, about a, there's about two and a bit trillion Canadian mortgages outstanding, about a third of them are coming up for renewal in 2024. So even if central banks don't hike rates any more than that, um and and it's it's the bond market that ultimately sets any kind of term uh, uh, term rate for mortgages. And we are sort of seeing the bond market hasn't yields haven't risen. So the bond market's looking at this slowdown, I think, and saying, yikes, it's, you know, probably going to be a recession. Why wouldn't it be? It has in any other episode that was lesser in extremity than this one. And so even if mortgage rates just plateau here, or even if they started to move down, I think that, again, the level of debt that's owed is the issue. And we're not even talking about losing employment income yet. But as soon as we start to see you know, the employment rate tick up, as we started to say at the beginning of the, of the discussion, that's when more stress will come in their ability to service.
0: So if I were to try to play devil's advocate to that, I might say high rates have also slowed new inventory hitting the market. Um, Housing starts have slowed down. Canada's immigration numbers, however, are hitting records. And I think we've accepted close to a million landed immigrants over the rolling 12 months in a country with 39 million people. It's a significant bump. Um, How much will that just impact this supply and demand dynamic? And what do you think?
1: Yeah, so we have a problem because we have demand for this multi-use residential property, affordable rentals and things that new immigrants and other students and young families can live in, affordable entry-level properties are uh, not enough supply today because we have this big bulge in the most expensive properties in the world, quite honestly, relative to income and rents, Canadian properties are world leading as this horrendous price bubble. And so that difficulty remains that if the average price of a home is 750 or so 780, we know that um, most immigrants are not buying. Statistically, the studies show that it takes about seven years for if a new immigrant gets here, gets a good job, starts saving money, etc. Historically, they could potentially be able to buy a home within seven years. That's kind of the long term norm. And in this environment, um, we're just it's it's so far beyond the reach of most that it's just not feasible. And then we're seeing all the horror show with the amount of uh, young people trying to rent properties and having to share rooms and, you know, landlords putting 15 and 20 students in one house because suddenly landlords are all struggling because they all bought properties during the bubble at peak prices and low rates and so now they're desperate to try and increase their rental income. So I do think we have this issue between I I, I don't discount the impact of the demand coming from immigration and we certainly have a, a dearth of affordability but part of that function Jay is because we've had something like 25 percent of all properties in Canada were purchased by an investor class, so to speak, in the past few years. And about 15% of that was corporations, you know, Black Rocks and the big sort of uh, investor corporations. And then about another 10% is sort of mom and pops that were trying to be real estate investors. But yep. the problem is that they all did it with pretty thin capitalization, again, premised on the presumption of continued slow interest, rate, low interest rates, uh, abnormally low interest rates, and and so the the pressure starts to build because if they were holding these properties that were negative cap carry to begin with, flat carry, I also wrote about that a couple of years ago in our letter, Jay, just itemizing that the math was ridiculous because people were buying these properties with negative carry on the presumption that, oh, well, the price will go up and that'll make it a good investment. Well, of course, it's more, it's severely negative carry now in a lot of cases. And so the pressure just starts to build for more of those properties to get listed. And when you have a big supply of those expensive properties coming on the market, and you've got a very few people who can afford to buy them, and indeed, of that, you know, say ten percent of the population that could feasibly afford to buy real estate, where we can't miss how much real estate that ten percent already owns. Yeah. Indeed, many of them already have multiple properties, whether they be, be vacation properties, you know, very expensive. Principal residences, or whether they be rentals, and so I know that those people are also going to be under pressure here as their business incomes turn down. Whether they may have small businesses that they own, as the share prices have been falling of many of many companies, uh, those are all financing factors. And so even if people if people have other resources, or you know they are the quote, unquote, affluent, they still get pressure to liquidate or increase cash during these episodes. And I think that's what will be a driver of price as supply comes on the market, more listings, you know, ultimately constructive J in the longer run, because we really desperately need prices to realign with income and rent so that things are feasible for families and people to start and also for an investment thesis so that they're attractive again, but you need lower prices for that to happen.
0: A- agreed. Okay. Um so let me ask you a question here. One maybe last question on real estate, and then we'll get back to some uh some some conversation about rates. When we look at the national housing market, it's obviously swayed dramatically in Canada or in the US by specific cities. Now in Canada would be Vancouver and Toronto. And so the average home price is, you know, they're around 750. Um, you know, if you were to withdraw Vancouver and Toronto from that average it would plummet maybe as low as by half i don't know um and uh so when you look at the canadian housing market you know is the crisis if we face a crisis would you expect that crisis to be fairly isolated in those markets that are driving the average price up you know the hot markets like Vancouver and Toronto and maybe if you own in edmonton or winnipeg um you know you're safe from a lot of the the uh, damage. What do you think?
1: I think it's there's some truth to that. Uh, it, it's like I say, historically, these very reliable measures have been the average, the price of the property to the income of the constituents in the area. So yes, in Vancouver and Toronto, the average sale price uh, sale price in Vancouver is about one point two million, in Toronto about one point one million. That's a mix of uh, the single family property, as well as the condo market, which tend to be cheaper. Um, but the thing is the household income in those cities is also higher. And yet of when course. you do the math, you know, the average household income in the Toronto area is about a hundred thousand. So it's still 10 times the, uh, the, 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 uh, the housing prices there are still 10 times the average household income. So I think that the greatest vulnerability is clearly going to be in the cities that saw the biggest inflow of funds, both on the quote unquote investor side, but also on you know people trying to jump on the lottery, the, the property ladder in desperation during the pandemic when low rates enabled it. And those places like where I live north of the north of Toronto, they saw the you know we saw 50% gains in prices in a matter of a couple of years all very unsustainable, those are obviously the areas that are at risk of the greatest deflation or disinflation or losses. And we're certainly seeing that a lot of realtors are, are, um, even on uh, Twitter, you can follow them where they're showing listings, you know, that were bought two years ago or a year ago. And now finally, after having been listed for a while, motivated sellers, so to speak, is taking, you know, 20%, 30% haircuts from what they they paid for the property. So I think certainly there'll maybe some areas in Canada where they'll, it, it won't, Be as significant. By the way, uh, you know, on average, we saw declines of about twenty five percent during the last episode we had like this, which was in the early nineteen eighties when we had this big mania and run up in home prices. Now interest rates were relatively higher at that point, but as a function of income, they were actually less. The, the ratios were less extreme back then. So I, I I don't accept people saying, well, rates are relatively low, so it's nowhere near as bad as it was in the 80s. No, actually, because of the price portion, the pressure is actually more significant now. So 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 the bottom line is there, it, it is relative, certain areas declined 40% at that time in, in the aftermath of the 1980s uh, bubble. And I think that you could see that in areas like I'm in, as I said, um, and certainly the, the cheaper the houses, the more likely you're going to have some buyers available or capable, uh, but these properties, this bulk of the boomer properties, and all the people who thought they were multimillionaires in real estate, um, I think those are the ones that are going to be a lot less liquid in this environment.
0: Yeah. Okay. And there's you know there's a, a lot of people, as you mentioned earlier. Um, that have sort of played as real estate investors because frankly, it's it's a lot easier, generally speaking, for better or for worse, to buy your second property than it is to buy your first, right? And so, especially in a low-rate environment, um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure. So uh getting back to prediction on rates, um, you know, we talked about uh bankers kind of extending terms to their homeowners, essentially just hoping the rate problem goes away. I know a lot of recent homeowners that are just hoping the rate problem goes away. They exactly everything you just said, they ended up owning homes they now can't afford because they can't afford the monthly payments. I know a lot of retail investors who are just hoping the rate problem is going to go away. And there's a lot of pretty bullish predictions on a pivot that we'll see, you know, um, sooner than I think we will. What are your thoughts on the conversation about the Fed pivot, rate cuts, all of this, Danielle?
1: Yeah, so they typically respond more to things like a financial crisis in the banking sector or they would respond to a dramatic jump in unemployment. Those are the things that I think will get the central banks off the sideline. A general malaise in the housing market in itself is not gonna be something that is actionable on their part. That's not within their mandate. It's gotta be more to do with, you know, unemployment uh, particularly that gets them moving. So I do think in 2024, uh, I would be very surprised if the stomach for staying pat lasts a long time. now. Average wise, you're typically going to see um, historically, we've seen central banks stay on the sideline, you know, it can vary depending on whether a banking crisis erupts, as I said, or whether there's some really ugly uh, economic data come but typically between 10 to sometimes even eight months they can pause um, where they don't take any action at all. By the way, Jay, as you know, in the background, they're still doing this quantitative tapering, right? This, this tightening of their credit conditions, which is a de facto tightening of credit conditions, even if they don't hike any further, even if they started to cut interest rates again, which you know, I think potentially by, I would say by mid 2024, I would be surprised if they're not in an easing mode again. Um, But again, that is a lagging impact as well. So just as it took, you know, all this time for the rate hikes to really bite and historically, it takes 12 to 24 months. So we're really in the sweet spot right now and sort of seeing the stress build, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a lot of uh, a lot more uh, negative information out of the housing market and stress in the consumer sector, retail sales falling, all that sort of thing, uh, over the next six months is kind of right in the belly of the beast for the hikes that have happened to date. But even if they start to cut interest rates again, um, as I say, you know, early-ish in 2024, um, we shouldn't expect that to run to the rescue because the problem being the level of debt and the principal portions that have been taken out. The, the math never made sense in the beginning when people were entering these agreements. And so even if you get a lower banking rate, and I don't think by the way they're going to go back below 2%, I'm hoping it's maybe that's wishful thinking, but I do think, again, I hope that they learned something from the zero rate experience, they found themselves landlocked, so to speak, they couldn't do anything really, once they were near the zero bound, you know, every time they tried to hike rates, markets had a um, a catastrophe meltdown, and they, you know, they blinked, I think now they've got some of their power back. They're going to be very loath to to hand that over again and go to the to the zero bound. So I think I just think we're in a not not a high for longer. These are relatively historically kind of average interest rates in here. Jay to have mortgage rates around five or six percent shouldn't be the end of the world. It's actually pretty healthy. Like to have a risk free rate right now, Treasuries. The risk free rate in the banking system is about five percent. That's actually when I was doing the CFA studies, you know, 25 years ago, that was considered absolutely normal. That's what they talked about in all the math equations and examples is like, well, if the risk free rate is five, and, you know, but we got to this crazy period, as you know, where the risk free rate was zero and 0.25 and all that. So the mass distortions that have really materialized as, a, as an effect of that and the programming that people have got, which was all incorrect information, sadly, um, has to be undone, I think. And that's what I expect is likely to happen uh, over the next year or so. Yeah, that's
0: interesting perspective, because, you know, recency bias might lead us to believe that when the Fed begins to cut rates again, we'll go right back to zero or 0.25% as if that was normal, right? Only because it happened most recently, when in reality, Mm -hmm. that as you put, was a crazy period. I mean, that was an anomaly, right? Um, So why would we trend back there? Interesting, though, to hear you say maybe trending back to 2%, though, is still, regardless of what I just said, wishful thinking. And, you know, we'll end up lower than that just as a consequence of less options on the table. Um, Very interesting take. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't think it's going to ride to the rescue of the issues that are currently at hand. And if they do so, cut rates, as I say, it'll take, a year, 24 months before it really makes much of a difference. And that's where that's that gap. That's the the reality.
0: Okay. Okay. So given, uh, what we've just discussed for the previous 30 minutes, I want to, I want to talk to you right now a little bit about capital allocation. Um, and let's begin with preserving purchasing power. So, um, you're you're sitting on a bit of wealth. You you want to preserve it. Things are pretty volatile. Normally, you might park that in real estate, or but these assets look a little bit uncertain right now. So, where are you looking right now, Danielle, for safety?
1: Yeah. So, I think the contagion impact of all the asset classes from the crazy period that we've just described is kind of unprecedented to have you know, real estate, equities, corporate debt, you know, we saw the crypto mania, we saw, you know, uh, precious metals, everything really got inflated during this episode of there's nowhere to put money. So let's put it anywhere kind of thing. And I think that now everything is kind of at risk of the give back phase. So we know that historically, for example, stock prices never have bottomed historically while the Fed was increasing interest rates, nor indeed when they paused. So a big cautionary bracket there to anybody that thinks, oh, good. Now, like." Stock markets have been coming off since late 2021. Basically, many are negative 20, 25%. You know, even the S&P with all its mania has not done anything in more than two years. I mean, the TSX is negative for a couple of years. So stocks have been coming off for a couple of years. It's kind of like a slow uh, decline, so to speak. It hasn't come off as, as quickly as you might think. But that's also not that uncommon to see these sort of hope filled rallies late in the cycle that, you know, keep bringing things back, bringing things back, ultimately counterproductive because stocks typically bottom you know, 12 months or so after uh the central bank has been slashing interest rates. So this is, you know, quite a bit further from where we are. We haven't even started cutting rates yet. So there's that's the first thing. And as I said, real estate takes a couple or three, four years typically to bottom. If we peaked in early 2022, you can kind of do the math there. We're probably gonna see some downward pressure for a couple more years here potentially. Um, so the only thing that has rallied historically during these episodic uh, uh, down cycles has been things like government bonds, things like the U.S. dollar. Even gold doesn't have a great record. Silver doesn't have a great record in these deflationary episodes. We saw those things come off significantly in the 2008 downturn as well. So I'm not saying that there's no diversification benefit in having some eggs in different baskets, but you have to kind of be realistic. If you're looking to protect from downside, the reality is that everything pretty much all 10 sectors of the stock market have been in decline now in the last uh, month again, and that's pretty typical. So again, if everything was inflated at the same time, and we're talking about the growth mania stuff, you know, the tech stuff, but also all of the dividend paying stuff was so inflated during this episode of low rates. And so bonds have come off severely um, relative to historical norms. Government bonds have come, come off with other types of debt as well in the past couple of years, but they're the only thing that has typically rallied in the six months after the pause and other cycles. So if you're looking to place capital in something that's like less likely to go down in value and indeed has a decent prospect of capital gain, as you say, capital protection, in this environment, then you've got to be looking at things like government bonds, the U.S. dollar, money market, cash is yielding nice today, um, and you know those are the things that your stockbroker and your typical financial advisor doesn't ever recommend to people because there's less fees in that stuff, right? So that's the awful truth: is you know few people have an incentive to tell the truth on that, and most people are still trying to sell commission-based assets of some kind where. Uh, and that's why the individuals don't often get that kind of recommendation, but that's the truth.
0: Mm. Okay. Now, outside of, and thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. Uh, outside of bonds, cash and cash equivalents, are, are you looking, do you see anywhere where there might be some asymmetric opportunity? A- anything from your perspective right now, look incredibly undervalued. So not just a safe place to park some cash, but you know, here's something that's super unloved, in fact, hated by the marketplace and if you have you know uh, a decent time horizon and some patience and some 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 speculative capital not a bad place to look
1: yeah i would say if you have a expertise in your own field or business area and you come across a distressed sale of something in this environment you may indeed be able to pick up a great opportunity uh, but that's more of a, a specific scenario where you're in the right place at the right time and importantly jay have liquidity So you have cash yourself because don't forget credit contractions are continuing to deteriorate here. Uh, Credit is contracting. It's, very difficult to get loans in this environment. And so you really have to have, you know, your your money already in advance. So yes, I would say keep your eyes open. Again, if it's in your field of expertise, if you have some uh, reason or or, um, experience that helps you know what value looks like, and you see something selling at a deep deep discount, absolutely, there's lots of opportunity coming in these bankruptcy cycles. Um, In terms of, you know, private equity venture, these so-called alternative asset classes. I have a lot of skepticism at the moment of those particular instruments. I've looked at some of them, certainly in the real estate space. I mentioned that REITs have come off significantly. The Canadian um, XRE um, is the real estate investment index. Um, You know, it's come off about 25% so far. So it's starting to make some progress to the downside. But here the yield is only about 6%. And historically, that type of instrument would come off more like 40%, sometimes even more in this type of environment where the dividend yield will move towards 10%. Uh, So I'm saying we're, we're definitely making progress. I'm getting pretty encouraged. Uh, but I wouldn't yet want to be doing a lot of buying on the more publicly traded instruments, nor indeed on these opaque pools where, you know, they're still marking to fantasy in a lot of these uh, private uh, instruments, uh, pools, they have brought down gates where they're not letting people take out funds because they're trying to prevent having to sell assets because that is price discovery that they've been trying to avoid. So there's a lot of, um, of dead bodies around that you want to be very careful about. Um, but I would say that the the prospects for liquidation in so many assets, I've never seen it this good in my career, um, just because the contagion to the upside, the mania was so extreme on so many asset classes for so long. So I would say that that's a pretty exciting thing. Also, I think bonds, as I mentioned, not corporate debt, I'm making a big distinction there, because corporate debt yields, you know, the junk yields have come up significantly, again, more like you know, six and a half percent, those things were priced for perfection a couple of years ago. And so that, you know, you don't want to be jumping in there in the midst of a major bankruptcy cycle. You want to let that hair sit for a while as well. But at some point, those, those junk TFS and that sort of instrument is also going to provide yields more than eight or nine or 10 percent and be extraordinary value. So, you know, you just got to kind of, I'm a big fan of buying things that produce income because I know that the bulk of returns since the inception of capital markets has actually come from the reinvestment of dividend income. It's a very small fraction of stocks that have rewarded people based on pure capital gains. It's mind-blowing. It's less than 1% have actually made people money on over a 30-year window based just on capital gains, it's always about getting a good dividend yield and having it reinvested, hopefully paying as little in fees as possible, hopefully withdrawing as little as possible uh, in the capital accumulation phase so that you let that compounding happen. So that's all um, something I'm we've got our buy lists made now with the income focus, we know what instruments we want to be picking up. But I guess the timing is very particular, because if you start buying it too early, you can very well see another 20-25% capital loss. And not everyone's going to have liquidity earmarked so that if that happens, they're going to buy the next tranche and the next tranche. It takes quite a stomach to do that, quite a discipline. And I find most people are quite um, too nervous to really withstand big capital drops and then still have the courage to keep buying things. So I guess, if I hope that's helpful.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. And, you know, a couple of takeaways from that, one of which is that sometimes patience is the best trade and, and you know, very well might be today. Um, and
1: forward thinking, right? Forward thinking, preparing your buy list, doing your homework so that you're not moving on a gut or a sales pitch from someone else, but you actually know what you want to buy. And then you have an idea of where value is. It's that doing that homework in advance, Jay, that makes all the difference in the world.
0: Mm. And you know how you shed some light on the fact that you know reinvested dividends compounded over time is where the vast majority of money is made in the market because we're coming out of a bit of a like a cultural phenomenon where stock picking um, ah, it became pop culture part part and parcel, right? And it's a it's a dangerous business, and I caution almost anybody away from stock picking unless you're doing this full time. It's a hard game to win at, very hard, very hard. You can get lucky and feel smart. But doing that sustainably is a whole different story.
1: Yeah, you win the lottery. Like people who have got quite a bit of wealth accumulation on things like Apple in the past a few years, you have to appreciate that that's been the best performing stock in in like a century, in decades and decades of of information or uh, performance. And so, if you've won the lottery there, think about how you take proceeds in the lottery. You actually have to sell some of it to take some cash, right? So again, this is typical of what we saw at the tech top in 2000, where the winners were all widely loved. Everyone sort of held on to them. And then they took back the outperformance over a period of time as well.
0: Okay. I want to point everybody to your website, jugglingdynamite.com. I don't know how you find time to put out a daily blog like you do, but for starters, that you publishes a daily blog. It's it's free on jugglingdynamite.com. Start there. Uh, it's a great way to start your day. And um, and I read your monthly newsletter every month, and I strongly recommend that as well.
1: Thank you. I read yours as well. You're a prolific writer yourself. So good for you.
0: <laughs> Appreciate that. And and just for context, can we find the paid letter, the monthly letter at jugglingdynamite.com as well?
1: Yeah, that's actually just for clients. So it's not a paid letter. Um that, that's only for clients.
0: Ah, I didn't know. Yeah, but we publish
1: we publish them in <laughs> retrospect. Uh, we have an archive of the last 20 years of letters on our website and we update them typically at a lag of about six or twelve months so that the average public right. can have a, a sense of our and, and to just keep us honest. This is listen, we've been doing this 20 years at Venable Park. This is our record. This is, you know, this is what we've been saying. And, uh, that's, that's the point of it.
0: All right. Well, I'm sorry, guys, you you can't get the monthly letter. It's just for, <laughs> just for me, but, uh, the juggling dynamite blog is excellent. It is daily and it is free jugglingdynamite.com. Danielle, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jay.
0: If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.